0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I will be conducting a conversation with someone whose career is really taking off. She holds positions in Germany and the Netherlands and will soon be starting as Principal Guest Conductor with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. She has already been mentioned twice before on previous episodes as a favourite current conductor. A great pleasure to welcome Karina Kanellakis. Karina, what a pleasure to speak to you today.
1: You too.
0: Wonderful to chat, and I think uh, I'd be right in saying that this is the first podcast episode where two ex-professional violinists get to chat to each other, who then became conductors. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, were you in the first or the seconds, or, or did it did it neither bother you?
1: <laughs> both. Both. I did a lot of both. I've. Uh-huh. Sat, I think I've. I said in every possible place in the in the violin section
0: uh, well you're already better than me i was the second fiddle player of my entire 22 year career um <laughs> let's find out uh, i know that you come from a very musical family um tell me what uh, what instruments did your family play and how how early did you start playing an instrument
1: well my my mom is a pianist my dad was a pianist and they met at juilliard and uh they um, actually live in the same apartment that they had when they were students and they've been married for 52 years. So wow. <laughs>
2: um,
1: <laughs> yeah, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So they, they, um, my dad became a conductor. And mm-hmm. um, when I was a kid, I actually, um, my brother is my younger brother's a cellist. And both of us had the chance to play concertos with him conducting when we were kids, like teen, teenagers, which yeah. is pretty pretty great memory now he doesn't conduct anymore but um yeah and I think I asked for violin when I was three ish and that yeah. was just not gonna happen I, I was way too young <laughs> and I just wanted to be outdoors and I wanted to be running around and the teacher apparently he brought the concert master of one of his orchestras over to the house and she um she said I'm gonna show you a trick and I immediately said, no, I'm going to show you a trick. And I, <laughs> I was like jumping off of the furniture. So, you know, not, not so easy. Yeah. Um, and I think, so they gave up on that. And then I, I, but I kept asking for a violin and then they tried again when I was six. Some, you know, one of those just probably very frustrating experiences for parents. Um, where your kid says they want to do something, but then they won't actually practice. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, uh, as a father, I've been there, yeah.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess it's, it must be hard to know what to do in that situation. But for me, actually, um, no amount of, of begging or pleading or bribing would get me to do it. Um, it was actually, it was luck that I started studying with a Russian violin teacher named Isaac Malkin, when I was about eight and a half. And he had two, has two daughters and the younger daughter became my best friend. And she practiced about four hours a day. And I thought she was literally the coolest person on earth. <laughs> Anything she would do, I wanted to do it too. So I just, I started practicing because she made the violin look cool. And I remember she was, she was only nine and she was playing Tchaikovsky concerto already. And I thought she was so amazing. And mm. so that's when I sort of, you know, that's the peer pressure.
0: And- did you at any stage, I mean, obviously you just started really practicing when you're nine, but so what point do you think that playing the violin might be a career path or a career choice?
1: I think that kind of just evolved naturally. I mean, I think anybody that has musician parents, um, it's such a natural part of your existence to see mm. your parents being professional musicians that I don't even think you necessarily think about um, having to having to sort of make it make a choice, <laughs> mm. make a decision to do that. Um, it's, it's sort of just it just ended up being the thing that I loved the most, more right. or less. Um, and I and I had a lot of subjects in school that I loved, but um, but I do I do remember when I was fifteen, um, and I was a totally normal New York City. Public school high schooler, um, that I I was accepted to the New York String Orchestra Seminar at Carnegie with um, Jamie Laredo conducting, who actually later became one of my teachers at Curtis, and and that that was a really big thing for me. That sort of changed my my mindset because I was I was 15, but I was in this orchestra with um, kids that were age 15 to 22. So there was, there were some some of those guys were already you know, at Curtis and Mm. Juilliard and this and that and Indiana. And they, I just thought they were so cool and we hung out and I, you know, again, this is definitely a theme, you know, people (laughs) that I think are cool. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just be like them. (laughs) So, so that definitely, and and it was right around that time that I think I became aware of Curtis, like of, of, that there's this little fancy school in Philadelphia and it's really, um, Elite and it's it's you know the best teachers and the best players and very international and I, I sort of it became this beacon of amazingness in my mind and I, I at that point started sort of that became my goal that I sort of I realized okay I think I want to go to a music conservatory and, and I wanna I wanted to I, you know cur- going to Curtis became my dream
0: mm. uh, and so it, and your your dream came true.
1: It did. Well, I auditioned hmm. twice. I auditioned once a year early, so I would have left high school a year early. And I was in the finals, but I didn't get in. They said that I rushed the last movement of Tchaikovsky. <laughs> how, <do laughs> so... how,
0: how do you rush the last movement of the Tchaikovsky?
1: <laughs> I remember being so mad because I thought, well, that's something I could have fixed, you know. And
2: oh.
1: um, so I worked really hard. I remember on, on, you know, rhythm and being steady and everything. And I think I played Sibelius for the the audition the next year and then so I got in and I was
0: Mm. just I was so happy so we've now got to further education as we might call it in the UK and at no point yet have you mentioned conducting at all if you were like me Mm. I mean I did one year (laughs) at at music college uh, as a separate course one year of conducting. but really all I wanted to do was play in orchestras were you much Mm. the same at this point or did you have a different idea of what you might want to be
1: Mm, um I uh, that's a hard question to answer I don't I don't exactly remember I think that I I think in high school I did some conducting I definitely remember there was one uh situation when I was a senior and I had already gotten into Curtis and I was a little bit you know I was very sort of very, very tired of being in high school and living with my parents. I was really <laughs> ready to get out of there, and I, I, w- I had a little bit of an attitude. And I just, I, I, in my high school, my sort of math and science magnet high school, I, one of my classes was orchestra, and I just, you know, it was just. I thought it was the <laughs> just the worst. I, I was really, I couldn't stand it. It was too much, and um, and I, I think at some point um i did end up conducting a piece i was giving the conductor a really hard time um and and he finally said you want, you think you, you can do it you do it and i actually did end up conducting that piece i think it was a it was a Sansal's introduction to rondo capriccioso with a friend of mine playing the solo part and it was somewhat challenging to accompany and so i ended up <laughs> just conduct he let me conduct the concert and i loved it i remember i love i loved it but i didn't I don't know. I didn't really think ever that I would rather do that than play the violin. You know yeah, what I mean? It yeah. was it was just it was an it was a part of my musical education. I took conducting class from the time I was 12. I mean, it was just part of the your normal sounds like you did the same. I mean, yeah, it was just yeah. part of your one of your classes, conducting and score reading and all that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I I saw it as Uh, An interesting diversion. I was always interested in what conductors did and why they did it. But it was a very interesting year. I got to learn about transposition. I got to learn how to learn a score, and mark up a score, all sorts of things. I was also a second study composer as well. And already I'd had to conduct one of my own premieres. So uh, for me, it it was a means to an end that, you know, if I wrote another piece, I'd be able to conduct it better. But I didn't think that I'd ever, ever, ever want to, put the violin in, in its case, shut it and, and not play it again and become a conductor. Never thought that, but. Right,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. Mean, me neither.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing how life sort of, you know, the path of life, the journey um, is different for everybody. Um, so coming out of Curtis, you're out into the big wide world and picking up work as a violinist, what, what were your first sort of pro gigs?
1: um well so i so i got out of curtis when i was 22. i mm. actually went to study do a master's degree at juilliard and about a month into that program i won the audition for the carrion so-called Carian academy um mm, they now yeah. call it the orchestra academy of the berlin Philharmonic. so that had that was also i used to go every year with my parents to hear the berlin philharmonic when they would come on tour to carnegie mm. hall and that was my total obsession. I think I, I, I saw a couple of the violinists warming up with Paganini um, <laughs> at a rehearsal and I was just, I thought, oh man, again, you know, they're so cool. I want to be in that orchestra. <laughs> um, they're all like soloists. And I just, I, 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 that was sort of, it was, a, it was one of those dreams that you think, oh, it's my dream to do that, but you don't actually think it's going to happen. <laughs> mm. um, but then it actually happened that I, I just moved to Berlin. Uh, So I did a semester of Juilliard for for graduate school, and then I left, and I moved to Berlin in January, when was that, January 2005, and um, started playing in the first violin section of the Berlin Philharmonic, which was crazy, Mm, (laughs) you know, I was 23, and I had only ever played in student orchestra, I I mean, I had done a little bit of, you know, you gig around when you're a student, but not not really i mean nothing could have prepared me for that Mm. um but that's how they like it there i think they like to get the youngins in there and kind of trial by fire
0: yes yes so young padawans to use a star wars term uh, to to learn the jedi trade yeah
2: Yeah, exactly
0: and and, and, and i think you'll correct me if i'm wrong but i think that you get lessons from a member of the berlin phil don't you during you that. do you
1: get you get lessons i mean the lessons are mostly on either certain orchestral music that you need to work on when it's in the very beginning and then once you kind of learn their way of doing things which takes i mean it took me two three months mm. um then then a lot of what i was doing was concertmaster excerpts Right. Because at that time, I thought, well, I want to be a concertmaster somewhere. Mm. And uh, so I was taking lessons with Rainer Zona, who was one of the concertmasters all the way back from, from when Karajan was there. So, mm. so right. it was an amazing thing. I was in, and he would only speak to me in German
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, before I spoke German. So that was really interesting. Um, he just refused to speak a word of English to me um, from day one. Um, which I'm so thankful to him for that because I, I'm now fluent in German and I would not have, I think if I went today and I, and you had all these apps and these translator apps and things, I would have never learned the language. Mm, yeah. You know, but back then, you know, I had to go to this Turkish internet cafe full of smoke and pay 25 cents a minute to, to email people. <laughs> <laughs> so you're pretty stuck when you're in that situation i mean the idea of wi-fi was like it didn't exist yet
0: whilst you were playing uh with the berlin phil who were c- who was conducting and what were you learning from them during your your time at the orchestra academy
1: well this was um 2005 and 6 so this was the heart of the simon rattle uh golden age yes <laughs> um everything was um very exciting, very high energy, a lot of positive things. Um, and uh, so, so there were, there were t- tremendous amount of weeks with Simon conducting and tour to Asia and Carnegie and this and that. Um, so it was, it was very exciting for me. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, 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 the best of the best were just coming through week after week. My, I think the first week I ever played was Shostakovich 10 under Ozawa. That was in the first violin. And I remember also who I sat next to for all those programs, which wow. is really freaky. But it had it had such an impression on me, those those first few programs. You know, I, I will, I'll, it's etched in my memory forever. Um, I played then, I think, Bruckner 5 under Tielemann. And I remember that same spring, I played Sibelius 5 under Janssens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Franz welser most came and did Dvorak 6th, or was it 5th? No fifth, Dvorak fifth symphony, which is not so known. Um, it, it was you know one one week after another like that. Just amazing, amazing conductors. Harnoncourt, Schubert Mass in A flat under Harnoncourt. I mean, it was it was totally. I was super inspired.
0: And and so uh, during these two years, at some point, um, conducting comes into your life, I am assuming. Um, Yeah, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) My path
1: to conducting is not linear um, at all. Um, I mean, you mentioned Boulez. So I actually ended up, after Berlin, going to Chicago and playing regularly there as sort of their first call substitute. So, you know, the, mm. I was the guy they called for almost pretty much every week of the season, they, they would need somebody and tours and everything. For three and a half years, I did that. Mm. Um, and that was when the Chicago Symphony had, um, they didn't have a music director, they had two principal conductors. And those two conductors were Bernard Haitink and Pierre Boulez Mm. (laughs) which was an amazing combination because those two conductors are are so different they couldn't be more different and so so and they also choose very different repertoire so so i was doing that but to go back to your question about where did conducting come in i mean i basically i was very inspired in berlin i started to think about it more seriously i had already been thinking about it when i was at curtis Mm. um but simon rattle uh, found out through gossip <laughs> that, <laughs> that you know there was this young academy girl who was doing conducting masterclasses in the summertime mm. and and he came to talk to me and he said you know what's this about and I said oh, I'm you know interested and then he heard me play a chamber music concert um, where I was leading a group and and then he came back afterwards and he said I, I you know basically I, I'm sure you could have a career as a violinist, no question about that. And you could be first violinist of a quartet or you could be a concertmaster. But he said, you know, I just noticed some things on uh, the performance tonight. And if you think you might want to be a conductor, I think you should do that. Mm. <laughs> and this was, I mean, I was 23. It, this and it, this was my, my, I mean, Simon was, my literal idol on earth i mm. i worshipped him I, I i was absolutely he was the most i had all his recordings he was the most inspiring every week i got to do with him i was just on a cloud so for him to even speak to me in the first place was crazy <laughs> <laughs> and then he sort of became this mentor figure of mine and in the beginning it was it was I was terrified by him. I mean, it would just to have a conversation with him, I would get very nervous. And, and he said to me, look, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta let this go. You can't be like this every time we talk. I mean, <laughs> just think of me as a normal person. And, you know, I'd like to help you with the conducting. Um, so, you know, long story short, he sort of had encouraged me to do that already at that point. But I don't think I was ready. I think that I, I just, I couldn't imagine... Doing anything that would take time away from the violin.
2: Mm.
1: I yeah. really loved playing. I loved being one of the one of the group, and I loved being in the section, and I loved being part of these great performances. And I thought, my God, if I start conducting, I'm going to conduct crap orchestras, and it's going to sound bad. And I'm going to be depressed. And <laughs> I'll <laughs> think about those days when I played in the Berlin Phil. You know, I just thought I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know, and so I, I pushed it away and. And I kind of, I don't know, I was also, I was a little probably scared to, I mean, you know this, it's scary in the beginning when you first start doing it. it's, you're standing on a box in front of all your colleagues and you know a lot of them as a violinist. They're like your friends. And it's embarrassing because in the beginning, every single conductor on earth is terrible. (laughs) You know, you don't know what you're doing and you're sort of, even if you're a really great musician, you have to be able to move in a way that can convey that. And, and mm. some people are more awkward than others. And you know, so those early days are really difficult.
0: But it sounds like Simon spotted that you had something in your movements in, in how you were leading the group that you were, you were playing in in that chamber concert. And I think much is the same, you know, when you stand in front of your colleagues for the first time, actually just holding a baton and not holding a violin and leading from the scroll. You know, I think that your musicians will look at you, look up at you. you know, my first time I conducted a professional orchestra was the orchestra I'd been a member of for 10 years or so, which was frightening, but wow. they, they would look up at me. I'm assuming this because they, you know, I've now conducted them 252 times or something. Um, they would look up at me and think, yeah, he's crap right now, but he's doing things that in the future will be really, really helpful and he will learn. And I think that's, that's where we have to give our colleagues uh, or ex-colleagues credit for you know, looking up and saying, yeah, it's not great now, but my God, it could be. Um, and, and let's give him potential a chance. Um, well, that's, that's such
1: a great point. I mean, that's interesting that you say that because I never allowed myself to 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 be so so kind to myself I I was so incredibly difficult and 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 um, negative and critical mm. self-critical and I think that pre- prevented me from actually really going for it for for quite a number of years uh, you know the, the fear that people will judge you and think oh well she's terrible Mm. Um but it's that's you had a much more healthy mentality I guess maybe you well, had nicer colleagues I don't
0: know <laughs> well, no I, no I think I think what it is it, it was my way of spinning the situation around to make it a positive in my mind. Mm. still still now you know I I keep my statistics I've conducted over 750 times and about a third of them have been with one orchestra which is the CBSO.
2: Well
0: it is still the hardest orchestra I ever ever have to conduct mentally. Because there are still people there who were there when I joined, who remember me as a 21-year-old violinist, for all of my foibles and my mistakes and my, you know, possibly arrogant, um, big-headed attitude. They remember all of that sort of stuff, and which can prey on your mind. The way I right. spin it, the way I spin it round is to say, "Look, if you were no good, you wouldn't have conducted them 250 times. They would have got right. rid of you by now." So it's a way of spinning the negativity round to positivity. Um, right. You know, and I do the same with other orchestras. You know, when I go there for the tenth time, and you think, "Oh my God, what do they think of me?" You think, "Well, they think enough of you to book you ten times." you fool. full, um, so right. that, that, it's my way of spinning it round. So I'm a happy person rather than a, you know, you're as you said, looking into yourself and thinking, "Oh, oh they're going to think this. They're going to think that." So yeah,
1: that's smart. Yeah, well, that's definitely a, something you have to drop very quickly if you're go- once you actually decide
0: yeah, to do yeah.
1: it. So, did you not have any gap between when you played in the orchestra when you started conducting them?
0: Uh, I became assistant conductor while still being sub principal second violin.
1: See, that's crazy to me. That uh, that's uh. so crazy. I because I I I think something that has helped me, um, especially just this season, I had a couple of debuts with orchestras where I really these are these are people that I played with intensely at Marlborough and at Curtis and grew up with, mm-hmm. who I hadn't seen now for a good fifteen years and so it was like all this time went by and i was completely transformed into a fully developed conductor and then coming back and we had this reunion mm. and that was very helpful for me because so much time had passed that of course i i mean it was just it was another lifetime ago when we were peers and and you know sort of fellow players
0: i sort of wish that could have happened to me i think what's what's happened more uh, by stealth is that you know they've watched me grow up. I, I did both jobs for nine years before I retired as a violinist, and then, but during that time, I was promoted to associate conductor. Andrew Nelsons and the orchestra promoted me up to associate, but they sort of watched me grow up. But actually, also during that time, a lot of the, a lot of changeover in the orchestra, which meant that there were people joining the orchestra who never knew me as a violinist. Eventually. And now, right. the, the, as those numbers grow more and more and more, then it, it it does become easier. Right. But yeah, it's sort of happened by stealth, whereas it would have been easier to have, you know, just left, gone away, come back 10 years later and go, hello, right. I, you know, I'm a conductor now. Yeah, um, <laughs> possibly, <laughs> I don't know, but you know, yeah. it, I'm never right. going to know because it's, mm-hmm. the, yeah, it's, it's the way it's been. So, as conducting becomes more of a thing in your life, you decide to go back to school and Juilliard and study with Alan Gilbert. How long was that for?
1: That was two years. Two two very transformative years. Um, and I was I was much older than your average Juilliard student, so socially it was very challenging. Uh, I mean, the other guys in the class in the conducting class were also older. But that was two years and I, I think the first year I was sort of, as you can relate to, you sort of straddle both worlds and I was still playing concertos here and there with various orchestras during where I would go away. I mean, I needed to make money somehow. So I was i was doing that and I would come back and not be prepared for my conducting lesson and it just, it wasn't working. So, So actually there was sort of a wonderful intervention at the end of my first year of this program um, where Alan just said to me, "Look, you're not going to become a worse violinist if you just put it aside for a year." So I just just do me a favor, <laughs> give this one year where you don't perform as a violinist. And at first I thought that's crazy, you know. But I I did it. I followed his advice, and mm. I think I was at the piano actually doing. I, that's also when I met Fabio Luisi and got introduced to the whole. Singer world and the opera world, and I was going to rehearsals at the Met almost every day. Whenever they were happening, I was there in the basement, like a little mole, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I was obsessed. And and so it was it was just a it was a real transformation for me because it also transformed my identity. I didn't play a single concert on the violin for one year, and it was really hard, really really hard. I I I felt. Uh, many days that I wasn't myself I thought what am I doing but at the same time I was really happy that I was finally um, I spent a lot of time at the piano score reading and also singing arias and playing at the piano and my piano skills got so much better my ear training got so much better um, and I had a wonderful ear training teacher also at, at Juilliard um, from that whole Nadia Boulanger school of solfège and ear training so it, it was it was a, a very rich and intense year where <clears throat> I got to the end of the year and I had actually been accepted to, to various masterclasses. And I had started to have some gigs as a conductor. Uh, a lot of them were sort of play conduct things or I'd play a Vivaldi or a Mozart concerto and then conduct a Schubert or Haydn symphony, something like that.
2: Oh, um, yeah.
1: But even then, even at the end of that year, I had no faith that I would actually be able to be a conductor professionally. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just gonna sort of conduct on the side and resume my life as a violinist. I, I, I really didn't know what was gonna happen. And I saw so many other colleagues struggling and not getting work as a conductor. And, um, and just a couple months later, I won the Dallas assistant conductor job. Mm. Um, and that changed everything so I I moved to Dallas and that I was the assistant for two years there and that was when Jaap van Sweden was the music director
0: and and was that an assistant to the orchestra or were you assistant to Jaap? Yeah to the orchestra to the orchestra yeah I I, I was it it's some of some some orchestras you're assistant to the music director and some other orchestras you're assistant to the orchestra and that, that's a big difference really. Um, Huge difference. Because if you're assistant to the music director you can end up sort of, um, you know, making his cup of tea and putting the Boeings in. Whereas, you know, assistant to the orchestra means an awful lot more workload hopefully and a lot more sort of knowledge. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah,
1: but this job was the best honestly i don't say that just because i was there i (laughs) i i have a lot of friends who've been assistant of different american orchestras Mm. and a lot of them did just sit around i mean maybe not making tea for the conductor but (laughs) but but, you know sitting sitting around was definitely you know a lot of sitting around and nobody got sick you know they didn't have their glory moment where someone gets sick and they get to fill in that never happened and Uh. they just you know and In Dallas, I mean, in two years with the orchestra, I think I counted, I conducted 60, six zero performances with the orchestra of my own in two years as an assistant conductor, which is crazy. That's so much. Mm. That's so many, you know, family concerts, youth concerts, but also run out concerts, you know, where the orchestra gets on a bus and goes to some church an hour away and plays for the community there. But these were full programs where I would do, you know, Ravel Mamerlois and Mozart 40 and this and that and a Beethoven symphony and tons and tons of music. And That's a great job, um, you know, to have that much. It was amazing, yeah. it was amazing.
0: But I do read that you did get your big cancellation, jump in because of, I'm assuming it was sickness. And it was Shostakovich 8 on no rehearsal. Um, right. Tell everybody what that must be like, because that's a scary. <laughs> that's a scary piece when you've rehearsed it and you know it, and and you you know you know how it's going to go. I'm assuming you've been to the rehearsals.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah, and two performances. I mean, it was this was my fifth week on the job. So I started as assistant conductor on September 1st, and this was like the first week of October or something like that. Mm. So it was very early. I was not yet. A very experienced conductor and um but i was i mean i i love shostakovich mm. and the fact that we were doing shostakovich 8 and i was assisting i knew that i had to be prepared to fill in uh. so it was at all the rehearsals and then um yep did the first two performances and i had to fill in for the second two um just like that
0: uh, yeah option Saturday I, night I've been there. Uh, Uh -uh. (laughs) uh, It happened to me on tour in Dortmund. But yeah, Schott's go what a piece. I mean, that's, that's an architectural sort of mountain um, to climb. And and, uh, it went well, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, I mean, Uh. you know, the orchestra was prepared by Yap. So they Mm. were in great shape. And they had just played two performances. Um, and they were behind me and they were really rooting for me and we came together and we made it happen. Um, and yeah, I just gave, I just, I don't remember anything about it other than, well, two things. I remember just giving it every single, you know, every single piece of my being, I, I gave everything that I possibly could emotionally to that performance it was so so sort of high octane um and and then i i I do remember (laughs) the applause
2: because
1: (laughs) Mm. i felt like i was one of the beatles i mean i really (laughs) like the most insane applause i've ever gotten still to this day because people didn't expect it they see this blonde girl walking out on stage i mean you know still at that time especially people didn't really see many uh women on the podium Mm -hmm. and and that added i think to the audience's sort of sense of shock to see a young woman standing there instead of instead of yap Mm. (laughs) very noticeable difference so so it it was it was amazing that sort of that feeling of um it was it was great and and then hanging out with my friends afterwards i mean it was just great
0: yeah um yeah happy days i remember exactly the same feelings um we've mentioned three names in the past few minutes um who have either taught you or mentored you or or been around you um alan gilbert fabio luisi and yap van sweden what did they teach you or impart across to you about conducting during that time was there a you know one person who was great at stick technique another at learning scores or was it just a general sort of absorbing everything like a sponge approach that you had
1: um let's see i mean alan was formally my teacher in a formalized conducting program at Mm. juilliard so alan was uh quite rigorous about score study and stick technique Mm. yeah that that was those are the two two things um and fabio also i think he transformed my stick technique completely uh he he really helped me to make Especially the right arm, much more supple and gr- more graceful. He also really helped me with posture. Mm-hmm. I was sort of uh, um, sort of sticking my hips forward and, and slouching a little bit, sticking the chin forward. like many people do. you sort of in the beginning, you reach into the orchestra. and yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he helped me to to stand up straight and he told me to think about playing golf,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which I, I hate golf, sorry. <laughs> I mean sorry if you're a golfer I know some people get obsessed with golf but I'm it's not my thing but I um you know I sort of understood what he meant about the the you know the stance when you're sort of putting and you have to
2: um
1: just slightly lean forward but you're more or less um standing straight straight up and down so things like that Fabio was very 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 helpful and he also um he you know the main thing with both of those two though Alan and Fabio for me was just observing. Yeah. I, I went to every single rehearsal and concert that Alan conducted with the New York Philharmonic in, during those two seasons. And the same thing with Fabio and the Met Orchestra. So he was, he was principal conductor of the Met Orchestra at that time. Mm. And for anybody who's not a New Yorker, you know, Juilliard and the Met and the New York Philharmonic are on the same street. They're, they're, they're a few steps. You know, the backstage door to one is a few steps away the door to the next building so i was able to kind of uh just jet back and forth between my classes and a and a rehearsal on un balo in mascara and then go back to an ear training class and then go over to the new york phil concert and you know grab a a falafel from the corner food stand in between and it was (laughs) it was sort of it was nuts i mean i would get on the subway at 11:30 p.m. and have to wait for the the A train which was no longer running express and get home in the middle of the night and have to walk my dog i had a dog and be exhausted but so full of just inspiration and 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 so full of all this music going through my mind and um i was meeting all these exciting people and you know so so learning from them that was a lot of what it was was also being backstage and seeing how they behaved, yeah, how you have yeah. to behave as a conductor, and the way that Alan, um, he, you know, he was very much, uh, his philosophy was very much, you know, be a fly on the wall in my life. Huh. Come into the backstage room. We were allowed into the room when he was having discussions with people. We, we would just sit there and sort of observe the whole dynamic of what it's like to be a music, music director of a major American orchestra. Mm. Um, you know and with Fabio I was in his rehearsals with the singers and um, and then I ended up assisting him so that that was the main part really of the of the learning was just the observing
0: and then out guesting Uh, the hamster wheel of guest conducting as I like to call it Um, where you know one week after another different continent different orchestras do you enjoy it
1: I do Uh,
0: or do you prefer do you prefer now you know you've got your your job in Netherlands Radio Philharmonic um, and other principal guest uh, places as well do you enjoy also now having a more sort of formed relationship with
1: orchestras Oh, yeah. Oh, rather, rather than
0: the hamster wheel.
1: <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, there's no comparison. I mean, the to me, the ideal thing is that you, you do the hamster wheel for a couple of seasons, um, and some of those orchestras uh, just become a nice thing that happened and others a a relationship forms Mm. and it's the same thing with people you know you you meet a lot of people but not all of them become your close friends Uh, and some become very close relationships and others are sort of just healthy but I don't know you go once a year you go every other every other season Um, and then there are those relationships where you actually take a title position with the orchestra Mm. because you just really love working with each other and it, it seems to make sense and it's also because often there's um, a goal in terms of what the orchestra wants to work on that's right in line with the way you are as a conductor and what you like to work on, and and that's exactly what they want and what they need in that moment, and it just works, it just clicks, and that's great. That is sort of the heart of what it is to be to be a conductor, really. Uh, for you know, from my perspective, is being able to go back uh, and do multiple programs with the same orchestra where there's a huge sense of trust that has been built up based on a long list of of past um great performances
2: yeah
0: and past experiences and past rehearsals and you know yeah. you, it's almost like you can carry on where you left off the repertoire might have changed but you're new your relationship keeps building yeah i agree that that's the that's the perfect scenario, isn't it? When I mean, you now have uh, you started in a chief conductor in 2019, Radio Philharmonic Orchestra, Netherlands Radio Philharmonic, um, and now t- and two principal guest jobs. You know, the, in one in Berlin and, and the LPOs soon to start. Who knows when, but soon to start. Um, and you know, that's that's a wonderful. You know, you've got three places there already where you can go. And know that the relationship just keeps building because everybody's happy. That's great. Yeah,
1: it yeah. is. It's really great. And I and I have other also very close relationships with other orchestras where I go back regularly, um, like Royal Stockholm Philharmonic. And um, even though we don't have a, we didn't name we didn't name our relationship, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, guest principal guest or something. But that's a very very close relationship and um, and an orchestra that I love a lot. And there, there, are there are other ones that I, that I um, go back to every year. And it's such a nice feeling. It's just, it's, it's great. And it doesn't mean that I don't like to make a debut with an orchestra or to meet a new orchestra. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I would rather not do that because sometimes mm. you can discover uh, an orchestra that you didn't previously know that's where it's, it's just tremendous. I mean, there's so many just unbelievably fabulous orchestras around the world mm. these days. So the level is so incredibly high. I think it's higher than it ever has been. Um, and, and that's fun. I, that's, I I for example, in January, I conducted the NDR Hamburg, uh, the Elbphilharmonie Orchestra for mm. the first time. And they are, It was so much fun. And what a haul, my God. (laughs) And it was just so, it was so great. And, and I think when you get used to conducting an orchestra that you know really well, it also, it's great, but it also, it doesn't necessarily always challenge you in the same way as when you have to present yourself fresh uh, with a clean slate to a group of strangers, especially in a country, especially in a language that's not your language, mm. um, where even if you speak the language, it's not, it's not your native language. And that's, that's challenging and stressful, but somehow I, I, um, <laughs> I sometimes thrive on those kind of extreme challenges. I don't, yeah. I don't like to be too comfortable in life. Then that, that I get a little bored
0: no, I, I think that's a, a good mix, you know. I think first dates can be really exciting with an orchestra, right. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, you can you can discover, you know, a love at first sight moment. To not do them would be crazy. I think I'm I'm with you on this. You know, I love the, that you walk in and think, right, I'm going to put a beat down. I have no idea what's going to come at me because I don't know what the response time, how far behind the beat they play, what their attack is, what their articulation is like, and that's exciting. Um, right? Yeah, it's stressful, but it's exciting. Yeah one of those orchestras that you've you have visited regularly is the bbc symphony orchestra and you got to conduct the first night of the proms what was that like
2: oh that
1: was great i mean i loved the program it was janicek uh, uh Glagolitic mass and dvorak golden spinning wheel and then this piece by my friend Zosha de Castri, who's a canadian composer is tremendous she's she's so talented and um i uh i was so happy that they the proms went for her as the mm. as the composer of the of the opening piece for the opening night so um the program was what made it great the the janet the janacek was really what made it great f- for me in terms of all the other um fuss around it i had mm. to block that out completely or else i yes. wouldn't have been able to focus <laughs> <laughs> so to me it was just a concert where mm. i didn't I didn't pay any attention to the cameras or the crazy amount of people. I just focused on the music and I, and I loved it. We had a fabulous organ player and it was, it was great.
0: I've asked many of the conductors this, but when we come to learn new scores and, um, or even revisit old ones, do you have a set method to learning uh, a brand new score? And when you learn it, or when when you go through that process are you a writer of things in your score or do you not write anything in your score what's your your method
1: Hmm. Uh, i am a writer of Hmm. things in the score i um i'll never forget getting pdf copies of Harnoncourt's beethoven symphonies Mm-hmm. Um, which were all the Peter's edition, which I find <laughs> hilarious.
0: Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah, that's a topic of, discuss, of discussion, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, um, but, uh, but and he had, he just had, I mean, it was insanity. Like entire poems written in the margins and storylines and he would, in you know, a Bruckner symphony, he would name the themes, uh, names. And, and so, so I'm not that extreme, but I did mm-hmm. find... I found that to be inspiring. Also, if you look at the archival on the New York Phil archives, Bernstein's old scores also um, often notes jotted down in the margins. You know, sort of like someone who's an avid reader and likes to jot notes in the margin mm-hmm. of their books. Yeah. That's I, I I I love to do that, and I love to jot down words. Um, I also find it very helpful um, before rehearsing a piece, especially a piece that I'm doing, if it's something I'm doing for the first time, to write down adjectives, just a couple of adjectives, um, especially in the language that I'm going to be rehearsing in, that's also important, mm-hmm. um, uh, which describe the passage so that if it's not sounding how I would, you know, dream it would sound, I would stop and, and just at a, at a glance, see those words and be able to give a positive directive to the orchestra rather than a negative, rather than saying, you know, it's too loud, it's too this, it's too that, it's not, it's not soft enough, it's not, I think giving positive directives, you know, it would be lovely if we could, it would be great if we could make this really ethereal and, you know, XYZ, whatever Mm. word, atmospheric or whatever. And so so that's something I write in my scores. Um, In addition to Uh, Instruments. I do write in my little abbreviations for the instruments, especially really thorny contemporary music. Um, It's also. uh, It depends on. I mean, if I'm if I'm doing a Beethoven symphony, I I will write things with a normal pencil. If I'm doing a I don't know crazy contemporary piece by Thomas Larker, I'll definitely take out the red and blue <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: the fable's red and blue you know? pencil yeah yeah the red and blue yeah. are
1: classic yeah. so i use red for instruments and blue giant blue 3 or 4 4 meter so mm, yeah. that there's no chance of my messing up uh, and um, uh, and and to tell you the truth that writing process is also how i learn it so yeah. going through it and writing that my various different i i, I also make sort of, I take a ruler and I make big vertical marks on, um, to separate phrases or Mm. to separate sections. And that helps me really organize the piece in my mind. I'm also a big fan of bar phrasing patterns. So it depends on how much time I have when I'm (laughs) learning something, which is often not enough to do this. But, but I, what I used to do when I was A little younger and and had more time to learn less music was to 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 write out um the the phrase lengths you know four bar four four dot three dot five dot and i would write that out just on a blank sheet of paper and sometimes with little little notes um like oboe clarinet melody or um violin part or you know cymbal crash and Mm -hmm. and just and then i would uh, test myself by closing the score and just taking this weird crazy looking absent-minded professor sort of, it almost looked like some sort of a math problem from someone's high school homework. We just sheet full of numbers and little scribbles um, and actually make myself sing and conduct through the whole piece, just using that, that diagram um, and see how well I know it. And I think if you can, if you can get through it, just based on you know, the f- length of a phrase and giving yourself a little reminder about, okay, this is, where the, you know, this is where the cellos have the melody. Oh, this is where the horns come in. Then you know you really know it. So, mm. so I, like, I really like to do different types of studying sort of tests and exercises. And...
0: I know that when people have spoken to me about conducting and they've said, oh, it, it, you're so lucky you're a string player. Um, I couldn't imagine being a conductor not knowing about string playing. Well, yes, I, I, I take that completely on board and I accept that I'm lucky that I'm a string playing conductor. But at some point I've had to ask members of the other sections of the orchestra, you know, why, does, why does that passage always sound tricky? Why does that note always flat? Why is a trumpet flat when it plays off stage? You know, why all of the, you, you know, you've got more people to ask. Did you have a plan for that? Are we lucky as string players? And and you know how did you do it?
1: Oh yeah, oh, that's a great thing. I mean, that's a great question. It's it's um, I think really crucial for every conductor to have a safe period of time um, with a safe orchestra in a yeah. safe zone before yeah. you go out in the real world, because. You have to have, or you just have to have really good friends that play a lot of different (laughs) instruments um, who you can call. Mm. Um, But for me, um, I've never been shy about asking questions. i found that in general in life, if I have a question about something, probably 90% of the people around me also have the same question. Mm. (laughs) And everyone's just afraid to look stupid and ask that question. So I am, I'm not ashamed at all to ask something. I don't think that anyone should expect a conductor to have the level of expertise on every instrument that the conductor has on their main instrument. Yeah. I think it's much better that you have uh, a lot of practical professional performance experience on your instrument. <laughs> Mm. than that you try to you know play the flute and the saxophone and the viola and the cymbals you know right. just to have a little of everything um that being said i did um have a horn for a while <laughs> when i was uh so i always I, I i mean when i was younger i somehow ended up dating a, a string of horn players <laughs> so i i had horns sort of at home for for like mean, my boyfriend when i lived in berlin was a horn player and. We had a horn at home, and I would, I would just pick it up and play it. And he taught me how to the proper embouchure and things. And so, so I sort of learned how to play the horn. And I love the French horn. I think it's the most beautiful sound. And um, and so I, I'm glad that I did that. And I actually had a horn of my own that was loaned to me by Jamie Somerville, the principal um, horn player of the Boston Symphony. And I had that horn for the entire two years that I was in Dallas in my apartment. And I was, and I was practicing. And I was, I learned some fingerings and. Um, and, and that was, that was helpful, um, but, but not as helpful as I would have wanted it to be, to be, to be All perfectly right. honest, you know, because you can learn, I also have another conductor friend who, who's um, originally a trombone player and a singer, and he tried to learn the violin, and, and he said the same thing, <laughs> you know, he said, yeah. I mean, it's not really helpful. It's just, it's more frustrating than anything else.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. You know, if, if, if you don't have the sense of what it's like to actually breathe with the section and have to play accurately after 30 bars of rest and
2: yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. all the things yeah. that a
1: brass player experiences. You know, if you're just fiddling around the thing in your apartment, of course it's, it's nice. It's a nice experiment. But I think the best thing you can do is just ask your friends who are the best of the best on that instrument and, and and they'll just explain it to you. And and even then you might not fully understand, you know, the the what it feels like to yeah. to do that thing. Because only someone who I really believe that only somebody who has played the instrument since they were little, where it's really their main instrument, can can fully understand you know, the ins and outs of tiny details of Mm. of what it feels like to play this and that clarinet solo or whatever.
0: So Karina, it is 10 questions time. And I will start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Um, I love the sound of a lake water lapping up against the 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 shore um, and sort of the rustling of leaves and and more or less any nature sounds. Um, And I absolutely hate more than anything (laughs) um, repetitive electronic sounds that are either on a loop or <laughs> like a, mm. some sort of incessant beeping of a truck or something like that, yeah. where where it goes on and on and you can't turn it off or a fire alarm or something <laughs> it drives me crazy.
0: It's funny. you mean you said repetitive, I could hear in my head a you know a lorry reversing. I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so annoying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the other thing that has become really annoying is Ed Gardner's answer was wood pigeons. And since he said the answer, all I can hear is wood pigeons in my back garden. <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing?
1: Oh, I would, I would transport myself with my husband to a a beautiful naturey sort of sort of Colorado or Norway or something where the nature is just really extreme. And I would hike and then I would um, make a fire and um, my, all my closest friends would arrive in the evening and we would all drink wine and beer and, and grill over the open fire, cook our dinner over the open fire and have hats and blankets. And somebody would, my husband, I guess would play the guitar and we would just, Yeah, spend the whole day out in a beautiful place with a fire smoking.
0: Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear?
1: Oh, um, uh, Wolfgang Savalisch. Does that count? He's not alive anymore, sadly.
0: Yeah, that counts. Yeah. And who would be a favorite conductor now?
1: Um, Oh, Yvonne Fischer.
0: What is the hardest work you've ever conducted?
1: Oh, man. Well, the hardest work, technically, that I've ever conducted, and this is a, just the first thing that popped in my head with that mm. question, was a viola concerto by right. Anthony Chung, who is a professor at, of composition at Columbia University. And uh, it, it's basically written out jazz. Right. <laughs> so the meter, Changes, sometimes halfway through a measure. Oh,
2: God.
1: <laughs> um, and, I mean, it was the most insane uh, score that I've ever looked at. By far, it was so... If you can imagine what, what improvised jazz sounds like, and then yeah. imagine trying to write that out, How many how many meter changes you would have to put in there, and how you would write out... How do you write out freedom? That's sort of... So that definitely... Um, on a technical level, and on an emotional level, speaking of Shostakovich 8, I will say that the last couple of times that I did the piece, uh, the more that I've done the piece, the more difficult it gets. Um, Mm. uh, It it, it is, uh, and I would say that it's similar for the 15th symphony, but the, the 15th symphony kind of gives me a migraine headache at the end because it's so, it's so so makes you feel like you're literally dying mm-hmm. i mean it's about death and it's it's but the, the but the 15th is much shorter than the 8th and the 8th is just so long and it's mm-hmm. such a long journey and there's something so incredibly emotionally draining about it um, especially those last two movements the way that there's sort of the, the big crash the big bang and then the fourth movement is so dead and so slow and you have to hold the attention of everyone in the orchestra, but also everyone in the audience. You have to kind mm-hmm. of keep it going and keep everyone going there with you. And then finally the C major comes, but then it's a long movement. And by the very, very end, it's just, I, I just remember, getting off stage, and and I remember having um, three performances in a row of it once, and I just thought, oh my God, on the third day, I thought, I, I don't know if I can go through this again. You know, just <laughs> super emotional.
0: <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without?
1: Oh, that's easy, my yoga mat. I, I take it everywhere with me. I have a I have one for home, and then I have one that stays in my suitcase all the time. It's a little bit thinner, obviously, and lighter weight. Um, but I, I'm not a yoga yogi kind of (laughs) person. I just, I, I do my own version (laughs) Mm. that no one will ever see of, of, of sort of yoga type things and strength training things and meditating a little bit or whatever I feel like doing. But I, um, and, and most, I would say. 80% of what I do is just lie on it on the floor at the end of a long rehearsal day, Um, which makes my back feel great and, uh, you know, feet against the wall and just lying on this yoga mat, which protects me from disgusting hotel room Mm. carpets. So that's, that's a, a prized possession for sure.
0: What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: The traveling aspect of it definitely. I would, if there's one thing that I could change about being a conductor, I I accept everything else. I accept that sometimes it's weird socially (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, and you know, that the stress of the rehearsals and everything, that's also kind of exciting. And, but the traveling is just the pits. It's so, it is so stressful. It's strenuous. It's bad for your back. It's bad for your uh, mental health—it's so removed from nature. Um, I mean, it's—it's it's the one thing that actually we've been forced to do without for the moment during this mm. crisis. And um, there are no planes flying over. We're we're normally in the flight path to Schiphol here in Amsterdam, and there are, it's quiet. There are no planes. It's amazing. I I have to say that that is the saddest thing about being a conductor is that. You have to get on an airplane. You cannot make the orchestra come to you. You, you, Unless you only want to conduct one orchestra wherever you live, you, you have to get on an airplane and go to where the orchestra is. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, not always the easiest lifestyle.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Oh man. Well, <laughs> I always, I always wanted to be a writer, mm-hmm. um, but I have a newfound passion as of about a year ago, which is cooking and, f- and and I think I, I think I would, I don't know, some sort of cook and food blogger kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I love food. I love cooking and I love talking about food and I love the science of cooking and sort of the, the glamour of sort of the high-end chef world. I just find that to be so fascinating. I actually think chefs have very similar personalities to conductors a lot of the time. <laughs> you have to be kind of really ambitious and really focused and hardworking. Um, so so yeah, yeah. But I, but I also would love to be, I, I've had this fantasy my whole life of kind of just going totally off grid mm-hmm. and becoming a writer. I don't know how I would make a living to- <laughs> doing this, it's not a, it's not a realistic or well thought out plan, but just, you know, getting a cabin in the middle of nowhere where I could have my, I could have my, um, my earlier fantasy of, of being out in nature and, and having a cooking over an open fire and that I would just write and, and I would make my money writing and then somehow the books would magically get published and I would get a check in the mail and I would just be able to, to sort of live a little bit more Uh, in nature somehow.
0: If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Pizza? Oh,
1: drink. Mm. Well, pizza and beer is just such an amazing combination. So I would probably have an ice cold beer and a really fresh, you know oven stone oven pizza with lots of tomato sauce and vegetables on it yeah pizza is pretty great
0: sounds good to me Green, <laughs> what a pleasure what a pleasure it's been to chat to you today and i hope to see you very soon
1: you too thanks
0: a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson Next time, I talk to a conductor who is no stranger to either the Concert Hall or the Opera House. He has had a long and distinguished career, having been Music Director at English National Opera for 14 years, and also Music Director at Halle for 20 years and counting. Until then, bye-bye.